Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Dr. Niels Hoem on the balancing act of harvesting krill oil for the health of the human race, whilst also protecting the Earth's ecosystem. And as the government announced this week that a round of funded IVF is to be made available, I'll be hearing from two groups who have been left out of the process. So what kind of health and wellness week did I have? Well, everything was rocking on as normal, a good week, life-wise and work-wise. And then, like so many of you, I was shocked and saddened to get the news of Sinead O'Connor's death into one of my WhatsApp groups. And often, I have to say, the outpouring of grief online can kind of irritate me, but it is how we express ourselves, isn't it? And This one didn't hit me in this way. Um, You could feel the sadness and the love ripple across the country and across the world. And I've really, I mean, enjoyed is not the right word for it, but to hear some of the biggest names in music talk about their experience of Sinead as an artist, Sinead as a a person, um, it, it hasn't got to me the way others usually do. I haven't posted anything myself yet, but what I did decide was that I would say something about her passing here on the show. I am a massive Sinead O'Connor fan. I always will be. Um, As a young girl, I rewound the VHS that I had recorded from the telly of the Nothing Compares to You video and I watched it over and over and over again. I was so drawn in to that face and that voice and I've just loved everything that she has done from then on. And years later, I was working in my first radio job and Sinead O'Connor was a guest on our show and she was talking about mental health and she was saying she wanted to get a grasp on how many people were struggling in Ireland. Now, bear in mind, this was about 20 years ago, so we weren't talking about it as much as we do now. And she wanted people to write to her at a P.O. box to let her know and let them know that they weren't alone. I don't think she trusted that enough was being done to get a a handle on how many people this was and then support them in that. And she said, even if you can just write an X on a postcard or an envelope and send it to this PO box number, that will be enough. And there are strict media guidelines on the discussion of suicide in particular and things which aren't helpful to say. And as journalists, we would receive that training. And after the interview, I thought I would ring Sinead and offer her that information. And when I think about it now, maybe she just seemed so accessible. I called the number. I obviously said, look, you know, I hope you don't think this is overstepping the mark. It was, you know, clear your intention and your empathy for this topic. But would you be interested in reading this information? And she gave me her email address. She was so open to it. So, you know, up for the the call. There was no offence taken and I sent it on and she replied to the email thanking me for the information once she'd read it through. Sinead O'Connor was the real deal, pure, genuine. She really cared for the right things in life. And any of you who have read her book or watched the documentary Nothing Compares will know that Sinead experienced real trauma in her childhood and she used her platform and her voice to speak out against abuse. She spoke out for minorities and the vulnerable. She spoke up for human rights and she refused to fit into what society expected of her as a woman and as an artist. 
And she was ridiculed for much of what she said, but she was right and she didn't care what people thought, though what she endured can't have been easy. And I can't help thinking that she was let down at many junctures in her life. And let's be clear, we are still failing vulnerable people in this country. Our handling of mental health services, of children in particular, is still grossly lacking, with many slipping through the cracks, as has been reported recently by CAMS and TUSLA. And trauma lasts a lifetime. I hope Sinead O'Connor's legacy will be, of course, her music, her family, to whom my thoughts and condolences go, but that we will all endeavour to be more like Sinead, unapologetically authentic, to stand up for what is right and to speak out against what isn't. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, in a gear change, Dr. Niels Hoem is chief scientist with Acre Biomarine, a biotech innovator and Antarctic krill harvesting company. Krill oil can help reduce the risk of several lifestyle diseases, including heart and brain related issues. And Dr. Hoem joins me in studio now. Well, Niels, you're very welcome. Thank you. It's quite the job title um, and it always fascinates me how people end up where they are. So I'm sure it's not something you can answer quickly, but give us an idea of how you ended up here. Well, it's a long journey. I can tell you that. Um, I started out as an academic uh, and I was doing that for 20 years. And then I ventured into early drug research. So where we actually, my speciality is really um, was back then, how, how do you give a drug to a human for the first time? Uh, in a controlled way. And I worked with that. Um, actually, uh, my last uh, assignment was in Belfast uh, and uh, in 2007. And it was so difficult to, to um, commute between Oslo and Belfast that in the end, I, I told myself I have to go home. And then I was um, employed by a company that actually marketed the first pharmaceutical-grade uh, omega-3 fatty acids, um, a, a drug called Omacor. Uh, and I worked for them for a only a short while until I was recruited into working for Marine, uh, which really resonated with me because I have a background where all my ancestors, my my father, my brother, my grandfather, they were fishermen and, uh, and they were seamen. And uh, so it really resonated with me that this might be fun. That's so interesting. And what, what sort of a child or a teenager were you? Like, what sparked your interest to even go into academics in that way? I was probably unusual. My mother was, was I would say, um, worried about me because I was interested in all... I was not interested in, in going to parties or anything like that. I was really interested in science. And it's interesting that, as you say, you were starting out looking at pharmaceutical and then to move into the omegas and a little bit more nutrition-led and sort of preventative rather than treating the symptom. And I really hadn't planned that at all. Uh, I actually spent five years in the drug, drug approval committee in Norway. So I really kn- knew pharma quite well. And and it always annoyed me with nutrition that I, th- I felt that they were only counting calories and not really paying attention to the finer effects of, of, of foods. And um, as a pharmacologist, uh, the first drugs were food. Uh, and it's pretty obvious that food have pharmacological effects. They have effects not just giving us calories, but they, we're made of the substances that we take in. 
So uh, it was, it's been a very interesting journey. Yeah, so it's not just the quantity of calories, it's the quality of those calories. It's, and all the other micronutrients that we take in. Uh, and for example, the omega-3 fatty acids that I've been working on now for more than 15 years, um, I knew them uh, in my childhood as cod liver oil. Uh, and uh, actually, it is an old drug. Uh, it was uh, scripted in the Italian pharmacopoeia in the 1500s by by the, the person who detected the the um, the lymph system, a, a very famous researcher called Aselli. Uh, and only now, in the 1950s, started, then we started to realize that these fats have special. Uh, functions in our body. And the breakthrough didn't really come until the 1970s when when we realized that fats are important uh, as the the so-called enzymes or acetylsalicylic acid, aspirin, really work. uh, the, The way it works is that it interferes with signals that cells use to talk with themselves and talk with with other cells in the neighborhood, they are derived from fats that sits in the cell's membrane. And only then did we really start to pay attention to to the omega-3 fatty acid. And it's interesting you say that we had that breakthrough research in the late 70s, but then all through the 80s, it was hugely popular to have a low-fat diet. Yes. And uh, we've demonized fat, whereas we we need good fats. Well, we're made of it. Every cell in your body um, has a convoluted sheet on its surface, but also internally, where all the different functions of the cell somehow is related to that membrane. So, and yes, you're right, we demonized fats um, and and we exchanged fats with cheap uh, sugars, uh, which we actually make into fats. Or what do we know when we have adequate levels of omegas so the uh the omegas one when we say omegas we actually mean three different fatty acids uh, epa dha and dpa and you find them in every membrane uh, and they are key players in these in these fat derived signaling systems so they really play an important role in the very basic immune system so really what what keeps us keep the immune system respond correctly. Uh, our immune system, the, the other part is what is called omega-6 fatty acids. And if you have too much omega-6s and not enough of the omega-3s, then there is a tendency of the immune system to overreact. It, it kind of goes high wire. And um, the intake of omega-6 fatty acids is tens of times more now than it was before World War II. It's a huge change in our intake of fats because we demonized butter and and animal uh, fat. And then we were told to, 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 to use soybean uh, oil and sunseed oil and and it has changed. It's, it's a huge change in our in our basic nutrition. Uh, at the same time our supply of those those omega 3s have gone down um, there are really no land-based animals that produce or plants that produce omega 3s it's really basically made by microalgae in the oceans 
And I find it really fascinating that um, something that is made by the tiniest of organisms in the ocean is so directly connected to us. It shows the, the, the beautiful web uh, that, that we're part of. And, and, and it's so we are taking in, we, for a long time we've been taking in not enough of the omega-3 fatty acids and too much of the omega-6s. Um, you can't really fix the balance between the two by eating less omega-6 because it's everywhere. So you have to take in more omega-3s. And the best way of doing that would be to eat fatty fish, uh, mackerel, herring, salmon, even farmed salmon contains a fair amount of these fatty acids. Um, uh, but of course, uh, in the general population around the world, people are not even close to having enough. And uh, a world survey of, of the status of how, how much we have of those fatty acids in our bodies uh, shows that in almost all countries, it's less than what is optimal. And, and, and you should be around 8% or more. And almost all of the world is down at 4 or 5%. Tell us a little bit about krill then, because that's what you work with. And I loved how you described it. And I could really see the visual of the food chain, the algae and the krill eat the algae and the uh, fish eat the krill and we eat the fish and it's all connected. Tell us about krill. So uh, when I'm asked about that question, then people ask, why don't you just catch algae? Uh, now, algae is there. You could scoop it up in your hand and you can't see anything. It's clear water. Uh, they're very, very small, down to five micrometers. Now, um, the creature that really knows how to catch algae is krill. Uh, so krill is a crustacean. It actually, there are krill in all oceans. Uh, but the krill that we catch is the largest of them all, and it's called superba. And that really means the largest in, in Latin. So Elfasia superba. That one is also called Antarctic krill. So it's... it's, it's um, it's typically around one gram, a half to one gram. Uh, and they've specialized in eating microalgae. And they do that by, they have transformed their claws. So the, the, the part of a shrimp that has claws is made into a little basket. So there are, the legs are formed into what is called a filtrating basket. And basically they're doing exactly the same as whales that eat krill. Uh, they are filtering out the uh, the the, um, the microalgae from the water, as and and whales are filtering out krill from the water, but but they are then specialized in this and and they get the fatty acids from the algae. They do not produce those, uh, and they are then the whole ecosystem in that region is is adapted to cold. So. Um, Krill has this very unusual composition of lipids. Uh, it's very unusual, first of all, that it is in the form of phospholipids rather than triglycerides. Triglycerides are what you usually will think of as, a, as an oil. Uh, that's what you find in butter or in vegetable oils. And the phospholipids are uh, an iteration of the same molecule, but they have structure. And it's, if you think of it as a tadpole, um, then a tadpole has a head and a tail, and the tail of, of the phospholipids 
are the fatty acid and they hate water. So it's hydrophobic. And the head is is hydrophilic. It it has this phosphate group and a choline which really likes water. So here you have a schizophrenic molecule that really doesn't know precisely if it likes water or if it likes fats. And what happens is that if you pull, push them together and you put them into water, they will spontaneously form sheets, membranes. And it's the magic of this that actually is the magic of our cells. All our cells are made of these sheets of phospholipids. And that's exactly where EPA and DHA, the omega-3s, goes in and where that, that's where they live, so to say. And this is why it is so important. Now, krill um, is very abundant in Antarctica. So you, you find uh, probably more than 500 million tons in, in the whole region of Antarctica. And in the Western Antarctica, where we harvest krill, um, at what is called the Western uh, Antarctic Peninsula, uh, so where Antarctica almost kisses South America, um, that's, then there is uh, the estimated biomass in that area is more than 60 million tons. So it, 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 it's probably the largest single species marine biomass on Earth. And have you been out harvesting? Do you I've, take yourself out of the lab and, and see it in action? I've actually probably spent, over the last five, six years, I've probably spent a whole year in Antarctica. Uh, and uh, I've been working in the lab. I've been working with with our operations to to, to improve and to to reduce our carbon footprint use less oil, uh, and but I've also been working uh, together with the University of Tasmania with, with, uh, and also another university, Griffith University in, 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 uh, in, in Australia, uh, with, with basic krill biology, uh, where we looked at lipid structures and we also actually also looked at what would global warming do with krill, will it cope with it? And so we've been working, uh, so, and I've been working really uh, hands-on in, in this. And I've experienced the explosion in the whale population. The whales are now back to, the whales are now back to pre-whaling uh, conditions. The, the, the populations in all over Antarctica, except there is uh, still a part of Western Antarctica where it lags a little bit behind. But otherwise, we're back at, at, at what we had. It's nice to have even a small amount of good news because it all seems to be quite bleak when it comes to our ecosystems and the future of our Earth. Um, can I ask about people who can't take krill? Are there are there some people for whom krill oil isn't suitable? Well, it is a crustacean. So if you have a, an objective crustacean allergy, uh, then I wouldn't advise Taking it, although I have to say that I have only come across a, a very handful, a very few handful uh, of of examples where I've seen a what is documented as as a as a reaction. Because there can be people who have a risk of blood clotting or blood thinning that there may be issues around, or they could be advised against. When you are when you are on a blood thinner, then you should always uh, discuss that with with your doctor. But uh, there are several studies now, uh, large studies that um, that 
basically says that when it comes to blood clotting, there isn't much of an interaction at all for any of the omegas. Um, uh, and uh, it is... Uh, it's not really that surprising if you look into the mechanisms. Then, then, uh, so, so I have. Uh, if you get into really, really high levels, yeah, maybe you would see an effect on, on what is called platelet aggregation. But remember, the coagulation is a very complex system, and it's at the crossroads of three different systems, which is platelet aggregation, fibrinolysis, and coagulation, and and that is. Uh, there isn't much uh, that points to that. It 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 not even uh, ahead of surgery or anything like that. If you were to tell people not to take omega three supplements ahead of surgery, then you would have to tell people not to eat salmon. And it it also is the kinetics is quite slow, so it doesn't help much to stop the day before surgery. Would you would have to do it a couple of weeks ahead of surgery? So. And what about ethical reasons then that people might choose not to to take krill? I, I see there are other products on the market that have sort of, well, they claim algae or that they're made from, from seaweed. What are the differing levels there? Well, algae, um, seaweed would not contain that much uh, omega-3s, but... Of course, um, you know there are there are people also uh, who are of the opinion that humans should stay out of Antarctica altogether, and and I fully respect that. I I think it is uh, unrealistic uh, because I can't I can't see how the human race will stay away from the largest marine biomass, um, and I personally believe that we can harvest it uh, uh, in a sustainable and responsible way. And it's a, to me, that's a better option. But, but of course, uh, if you have objections, you know, there are vegans that definitely won't take krill. And, and then there are alternatives. Uh, and and uh, uh, what I'm saying is that whatever you do, by all means, see through that you, uh, especially for vegans, uh, you really need to take your omega threes. Uh, I would be very uh, concerned about vegans not getting uh, long chain omega threes uh, at all. Uh, yeah, and just make sure that you're choosing a brand that also is harvesting that algae in a sustainable and ethical way. I was reading an article of yours to ask you finally, uh, Dr. Niels, that said running several research projects in tandem is like riding a tiger. Why did you describe <laughs> it in that way? No, that's true. Uh, well, it is... Um, uh, Archibiomarine is a very strange company. We are we are doing it all. We are starting out in Antarctica. We have drones in Antarctica and we have boats in Antarctica. We are transporting everything we need into Antarctica and taking all our products out of Antarctica. Then we are running uh, a factory in in Texas, in Houston, uh, and then we are doing clinical research. Uh, we are doing uh, we part of our products is used for aquaculture, so we're into animal health. So it, it's really uh, it it really feels like riding a tiger uh, occasionally <laughs> because, um, uh, but frankly, I'll rather ride the tiger and have fun than ride a slow and boring elephant. <laughs> well, I was going to say that to you. Anyone who thinks research and lab work is boring now has this exciting vision of you astride a tiger. Um, and I think that's a far better image, as you say, is something slowly 
plodding along. It's been fascinating having access and a little insight into your work. Thank you so much for coming on. Dr. Niels Hoem, Chief Scientist with ACA Biomarine. Thank you very much. Coming up after the break, the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has announced one publicly funded round of IVF from September. But who has been left behind? Alive and kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, September will be the first time in the history of the state that there will be publicly funded reproductive treatment. Eligible couples will be fully funded for one round of IVF, subject to qualification criteria. Joining me on the line now is Eilisha Regan, health correspondent with the Irish Independent. Eilisha, very welcome. Hello, Kerr. Can you tell us what those qualification criteria are, please? The age limit is 41, so a woman can't be over 41. Her BMI cannot be more than 30. You have to be in a relationship for um, at least a year. It has to be a heterosexual relationship. So same-sex couples are, are not uh, eligible at the moment. If, if you've had uh, one previous round of IVF, you're, you're, you're eligible, uh, but you must have used up all of the e- embryos. If you're in a relationship and you have no uh, children w- with, with your partner, um, you're, you're eligible, but uh, one of the partners ha- has to have no li- living child. The, the scheme will start in, in, in September. You're, you're allowed uh, three uh, cycles of intrauterine insemination if it's suitable for you. Um, and then one cycle of um, IVF or ICSI. So, and as I said, how much at least funding has been ring-fenced for this, Eilish? £10 million was uh, designated there in the last budget. You know, these are relatively recent, you know, these fertility hubs. But um, you can get a whole series of investigations in that, which, which would have cost people money previously. So, And all of this is free. Some of the money would have gone into the hubs already. And, you know, they're relatively well-staffed and that. Now, there's about 180 referrals to the hubs already per month. So Yes, and so, the first National HSE Fertility Centre will be opened in Cork next year and that's set to do around 500 IVF cycles. So as you say, there will be people who can avail of this and financial constraints won't be a deciding factor for many. Has there been any reaction to this from Stephen Donnelly? Has he acknowledged the complaints or suggested that perhaps we'll have something more accessible or inclusive in the future? Um, he, he has promised uh, a, a key a key a key stepping stone in all of this will, will be the passing of the human um, reproduction bill assisted human reproduction bill which uh, he said will will pass um by the end of uh, the the year so once that's in place you see uh, it will allow then for the setting up of an authority and this whole area you know the clinics and the, um, the, the 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 treatments will, will be uh, will, will be regulated for, for the first time. And when is that expected? That bill? Well, it it was it was published in March, and it's currently before the door. Now he, he has said that he intends to push it uh, uh, forward to be, be in, in the next uh, door term. Okay. Well, Eileen Regan, health correspondent with the Irish Independent, thank you very much for coming on. And I mentioned moving to a more um, inclusive model. I said cohorts, but believe it or not, they are actually real life people. And joining me to represent 
two of the very aggrieved groups who've been left out of this announcement is Renee Von Medding, who is CEO of Equality for Children. Renee, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you, Claire. And I'm also joined by Jess Willow, a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counsellor and an expert in fertility nutrition at Willow Nutrition. Thank you so much for coming on. Renee, I'm going to start with you. Tell me your reaction when you heard about the announcement this week. Claire, I'd like to say I was surprised, but um, unfortunately I wasn't. I actually was starting to get messages the night before the announcement was made and um, I wasn't surprised that the LGBTQ plus community once again have been completely left behind and left out. Um, the announcement was made that anyone who needs a sperm or egg donor in order to conceive is going to be for the moment completely omitted from this publicly funded fertility treatment. And as you know, 100% of the LGBTQ plus community need the assistance of a donor in order to conceive. Um, So I suppose within our community, there was shock there was devastation. Um, many people have been waiting for this funding to become available. And um, I think it was it was unexpected in ways, you know, people expected some of the other criteria that perhaps have been mirrored from places like the NHS. I don't think anybody really expected that um, anyone needing a donor would be completely excluded. I mean, I'm not putting this at Eilish because she was just as a journalist giving us the facts, but it just sounded so dated and so wrong. I, I, everything was standing up on the back of my neck as she was describing mm. what eligibility criteria are there. It's just the message it sends out about how we view a family or mm. how we view parenting that's not where we are in this modern age. That's not where I hoped we were in this country. Yeah. And, you know, it's been disappointing for, for myself hearing the narrative over the past couple of days. It hasn't really been widely reported that the LGBTQ plus community have been excluded uh, from the funding. Um, I've only heard it mentioned once or twice. And I have people messaging me saying, are you serious? They didn't they didn't say this on the news. Is, is this for real? Um, and I, I said, unfortunately, it is. Um, one of the other kind of narratives that's been kind of floating around is that, well, look, it's a start. And sure, sit back, wait your turn, smile, and it'll happen for you at some point. And to be honest, we are at a stage now that we are tired of sitting back and shutting up. And it's not good enough. It's not good enough to exclude an entire... Uh, section of society based on their relationship status or their sexual orientation. It's not good enough. You've been on a fertility journey mm. yourself. You've come on the show to talk about it. You're currently pregnant um, with what would be your fourth pregnancy. Am I Fifth, right? Actually. Fifth yeah, pregnancy. I've had two losses, so this would be number five. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully this will be your, your third member of yes. your children uh, later on um, in this year. But it takes such a toll on you emotionally, mm. physically. You share so much of it on social media, but financially, there's already so many challenges. So to not be included in something that could take even one of those away, it, yeah. it, it, it must really sit uncomfortably with you. It does. And, you know, this child <laughs> that I'm carrying wouldn't exist. Um, we would be disqualified under 
three different criteria. We would be disqualified because we're gay and we needed a sperm donor to conceive. We'd be disqualified because we already have a child and we'd be disqualified because we've paid for more than one round of of privately funded IVF. Um, I take kind of great exception to this, um, you know, like people alluding to the fact that we don't have any regulation when it comes to donors in Ireland. That is not true. We have a piece of legislation, the Children and Family Relationships Act, the piece of legislation that made it possible for some same-sex female families to finally have equal recognition for their families. Um, That piece of legislation set up a national donor registry. We have regulation when it comes to sperm donors in Ireland. And, you know, (laughs) for someone to say that's the reason that they aren't including people who need donors right now, that's a complete cop-out. And for Stephen Donnelly to say that um, that's the reason that it's not included, that's it's quite simply not true. I remember last year, you know, Equality for Children, we've been campaigning in this space when it comes to the Assisted Human Reproduction Bill, when it comes to surrogacy, and we are campaigning for an, ex- uh, uh, an inclusive a piece of legislation that encompasses all family types. And a year ago, Stephen Donnelly said to us that we were holding up the uh, the introduction of the public funding for IVF. We were holding it up because we wanted to go back and look at amendments for the AHR bill. He said that to us a year ago, okay? And we still don't have that, Um you know, indications that it's going to come in by the end of the year. Don't believe that. We've been told that every year. Doesn't happen. Um, but we we didn't hold it up. It, it was never ready to go a year ago. Even now, when it's been rolled out, it feels like they thought about this in the last couple of weeks. And in this country, we voted for same-sex marriage. And then we were like patting ourselves on the back for being so progressive and it was also amazing. And it was, it was a really positive move and that was blasted out across the world and it was great. But it feels like we just have come to a snail's pace since then. It's like we plateaued and, and nothing else has happened. And that frustrates me so much. It's so unfair. I mean, not only for the LGBTQ plus community, but not even single people are allowed to become parents in this way. And this is the modern family. It looks very different. We don't need a mom, a dad and a white picket fence. We've moved on from that ideal. And that's the message that this really sends out. What have you heard from from followers? As you say, the the, the mainstream media haven't really been shouting about it that much, although I've seen you on, on TV talking mm-hmm. about it. What have followers been saying? Just shock and disgust. I, I put up a question box the, the day it was announced and just said, of the people who are following me here, um, who would qualify? If you needed this, who would qualify? And I had hundreds of responses. And do you know how many people of the respondents w- would have qualified? One. One person. Everyone else was disqualified because they need a donor, because they already have children, because they're too old, because their BMI falls outside of, of the uh, criteria. Um there are so many problems with this. It's not just the donor issue, um, but looking at it as a whole, um, it's 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 
just very disappointing and it's very um it's it's quite shocking. You know, I've 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 seen quite quite a few funny memes, you know, about like who's who's actually going to qualify, you know, if it's if you're a pink unicorn who's who's got a copy of your your mother's junior cert, you know. It's, it's like <laughs> well, I'm so impressed that you can keep your humour through all of this um, while on anti-sickness medication and pregnant. So good for you, Renee, because like you'd have to, otherwise you would completely crack up. But it does send a really disappointing message. I do think there are positives to the announcement, but why not just ring fence the, fen- the funding and have it open to all? And when the funding is gone, it's gone and then look to extend it. I sometimes think, am I like Tinkerbell here thinking we can just wave wands? But I don't understand why that's not where it is. Well, I'd love to get your thoughts on this topic. The email address is always open on any topic we discover, but I'd love to get your reaction to the announcement this week. If you're uh, impacted in any way to whether it's a fertility struggle or, you know, you can identify with what Renee is saying, um, you can always email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And when we come back after the break, we're going to be hearing from Jess Willow, a registered dietitian, to discuss the BMI element of the eligibility criteria. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking, where we've been talking about how eligible couples will be fully funded for one round of IVF subject to qualification criteria. It was announced this week by the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly. And before the break, we were hearing from Renee Von Mendig, CEO of Equality for Children, on how the LGBTQ plus community have been completely left out of this process. And I want to bring in Jess Willow now. So Jess, you are a registered dietitian at Willow Nutrition and a certified intuitive eating counsellor and an expert in fertility nutrition. Tell me how you feel about a person's BMI being included in their qualifying for this publicly funded IVF. It is very upsetting for a lot of people to see these restrictions. I think it is definitely a step in the right direction, but it is um, restricting access for an awful lot of people. Um, we know that BMI as an individual um, measurement of, of overall health is flawed. It was never developed to be used at an individual level. And when we look back of where BMI came from, it's based on 7,000 predominantly white European men um, and it was it was developed predominantly to be used in research and yet here we are using it in healthcare every single day and actually using it as a way to restrict access to healthcare. Um, I work in a weight inclusive approach so I support women and men um, to make positive health changes irrespective of their weight um, and I work specifically with women and men who are going through fertility treatment and see it on a day-to-day where access is restricted um, based on the number on the scales. Um, And it is very, very disheartening for a lot of the the individuals that I work with. Um, You know, it's not new that we're seeing BMI used as as, um, a way to restrict access. It is used in an awful lot of other countries who already have publicly funded um, IVF um, as well as privately um, private clinics as well. So in New Zealand, they restrict BMI from to 32. Nice Guidance themselves have a restriction of of BMI of 30. Um, But when you look at the research, a lot of the research is very conflicting. And actually, we know that age has a stronger negative impact on fertility um, and pregnancy outcomes versus BMI. Um, And when we know 
what we know now about dieting and how damaging it can be and how it does not actually work in the long run and can't be sustained. We're seeing an increase of disordered eating and eating disorders in women of all shapes and ages and sizes. Um, really kind of telling women that they have to go off and lose weight in order to qualify for fertility treatment when they're losing those valuable years that unfortunately we don't have the luxury of um, is, is I think, very damaging and, and can really, really lead to, um, again, it's it's restriction, it's stigmatisation um, and will be devastating for a lot of people, I think, to hear. And that's, again, I start to read between the lines and it's the messaging. It's the same for the LGBTQ+, plus for what we hold important and what we value. There's a message goes out and the message that I hear is that there's blame. That if, if you've got to a certain BMI, there were things you were doing or not doing that if you could just go and sort out, well, then, of course, you can get access to fertility. And we know now that that's not true. There are so many other factors which lead to people's weight, people's body size. It's not something that is in your control and within your grasp. And it leads to so many unhealthy behaviours. And I've even been reflecting on my own pregnancies in my 30s where I hadn't stepped away from diet culture and was very much swimming within it. And I definitely restricted certain foods so that I wouldn't go over a certain weight or wouldn't. And was that the best thing for me or my baby? Babies? No, it, it wasn't. And that's the messaging we keep giving out. And, and that's where I have an issue. And when I think about people who arrive for fertility treatment, I would say that they are already at a stage where they're blaming themselves and their bodies for some sort of in inverted commas failure. So to be told, go away and lose weight is just so far away from, from healthcare and compassion. And it's unnecessary. What do we know about the research with weight and fertility? Mm. So I think there's there's insufficient evidence to link BMI to reduction in live births. Um, you know, and we have to consider if women are being told to lose weight, what the implications are of that time lost and the poor success outcomes of losing weight. Um, you know, I've already mentioned the rates of disordered eating and I think blame is, is a really important one that you've you've kind of highlighted there is a lot of women are blaming themselves already because they can't get pregnant. It takes two. Um, but unfortunately, it tends to be the brunt of the woman, you know, who who is who is taking on, um, you know, kind of the fact that pregnancy isn't happening for them for whatever reason that may be. Um, you know, when we kind of look down into the research um, in regards to, to BMI and pregnancy outcomes, um, you know, we don't have an association between BMI and rates of clinical pregnancy. Um, you know, and, and when we look at those undergoing IVF and ICSI, there's no difference between IVX, IVF success rates in relation to ovulation and clinical pregnancy in those with a higher BMI. I, I think, you know, it's it's another way to restrict the amount of, of women that can access this treatment. Um, and when we look at those of reproductive age, women of reproductive, reproductive age in Ireland, over half of them are overweight or obese if we're using the BMI as an indicator, which we know is flawed anyway. So again, it's, it's you know, like Renee was saying, how do you qualify for this when we're kind of looking at those numbers of, of already being, you know, cut out from, from being eligible for this, for, for this scheme? And are there issues around clinical trials with pregnant women? Is that something that we're coming up against with the research? Or something I've come across time and time again in this job is... 
The research depends on the motivation behind it Mm. and what we're actually looking for and what we're motivated to find out. So it can be skewed. Absolutely. And I think it depends on how you're looking at the research. And I think, you know, having large clinical trials, like you said, where we're looking at pregnancy outcomes, is, ex- is you can't do that. You know, it's, it's very, very challenging. And a lot of the research that we do have don't control for maternal age. They don't control for dietary quality, um, you know, for lifestyle as well. Um, you know, they're people's genetic predisposition to being in a bigger body, which the majority of people in bigger bodies, you know, are. Um, the rates of disordered eating and binge eating disorders. Um, and again, when we look at eating disorders, you know, you don't have to be in a small body or be underweight to have an eating disorder. And I'm seeing that so frequently now in clinic where, women are trying to desperately lose weight in the quickest way possible because they're in their late 30s or early 40s and they're actually ending up with a clinical eating disorder. They're quite undernourished and they're restricting, you know, a really good quality nutrients from their diet that are exactly what you need when you're trying to get pregnant and make a nice home for a baby. Um, So again, I just think it's really, really detrimental in regards to how women will ultimately have to approach this in order to access treatment. Yeah, and I I want to kind of touch on that point a little bit because I know I'm hearing the naysayers who will say, well, what are you saying? That it's fine for us all to be healthy, unhealthy. And that's not what you're saying. I mean, you're a nutritionist, Mm -hmm. you're a dietitian, you're all about eating well, but having a healthy relationship with food and body. And nobody's saying that there aren't many positives to somebody saying, you know what, I'd like to start a family. Why don't we all start trying to bring in healthy behaviours? But focusing on weight loss alone can become a very unhealthy behaviour. Yeah, absolutely. And in the guidelines as well that they've released with the scheme, they've touched upon alcohol, smoking, um, recreational drug use, but there's no mention of dietary quality. Um, And that's so important. And we know more and more about the impact that nutrition can have on our fertility outcomes for men and women. Um, And, and, you know, I guess it's... it's not focusing on actually that we can make healthy changes irrespective of trying to change our weight that are going to have a massive impact on our egg quality, on ovulatory function, on sperm quality, which is far more important than just looking at, oh, well, your your BMI is over 30. So, no. I feel a real, oh, captain, my captain moment. I mean, if these chairs weren't on wheels, I would stand up because um, I don't want to injure myself. But I so appreciate both of you coming on um, and, and, and using your voice in this way because it needs to be said and we need to start talking more and opening up our minds a hell of a lot more because we're still very close minded here in this country. I will end on a positive that this is an advancement in access to assisted reproductive health care for couples, which can obviously, as I've said, be a hugely stressful and difficult time. And I hate to think of the toll that I've mentioned already, not only personally, but also financially and money being a barrier to people becoming parents. But it does not go far enough and it excludes and sends a message to certain groups. And I really wanted to give them a voice today. So I am very grateful to Renee Von Mending of Equality for Children. She is their CEO and Jess Willow, a registered dietitian at Willow Nutrition and an expert in fertility care. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. And again, I would love you listening to get involved in this conversation. You can email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com as you can for any topic that we discuss or anything you would like to see on a future show. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Eva Breen, to Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound, to all of my guests. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. 
Alive and kicking on News Talk.